All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on the 17th of December, 2019. Uh, I do want to remind you, I'm the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. It's a letter that Focuses on the junior mining companies, some of them uh, that you hear about here on this show, but that's only a small number of the companies that I cover and follow very closely. Very exciting times now as these companies are finding, some of them, finding significant amounts of gold in the ground. We'll be talking to Chris Taylor in just a little while today. Uh, Great Bear Resources is one of the most exciting stories that I've covered in all of the 30 35 years, I think it is about, that I've been writing my newsletter, long time, and this is one of the more exciting ones. So Chris will be with me a little, little bit later. I'd like to also remind you uh, of Chen Picks, chenpicks.com, and his letter is, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Go to chenpicks.com uh, to sign up for Chen's letter. Michael Oliver is with me today, olivermsa.com. You need to go there as well, uh, and Michael will be with me in just a moment or two. And I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more show, one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. So, encourage you to keep your comments, whatever they be, positive, negative, or whatever, send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I also want to thank our sponsors. Without them, there would be no show. Today's sponsors: Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Great Bear Resources, Gatling Exploration, and TriStar Gold Resources. I've titled today's show, Euthanasia of Capitalism by the Federal Reserve Bank. Keith Weiner, Michael Oliver, Chris Taylor return today as my guests. John Maynard Keynes said, and I quote, There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose, end of quotes. Most suggest Keynes was speaking in that quote of inflation as a destroyer of society, but my guest during the second hour today, Keith, uh, second half hour, is Keith Weiner. He argues that Keynes really meant to be, uh, he really had in mind declining interest rates were the destroyer of society. We will ask Keith why he thinks a manipulation of uh, rates uh, the declining rates uh, under Federal Reserve manipulation is the death knell of capitalism. Regardless of what was in Keynes' head, Keith will make the case as to why he believes that the manipulation of low rates is really causing us a lot of harm and a lot of uh, future grief. That message should be loud and clear from the self-inflicted uh, self-infl- destruction of the Soviet Union and, and Mao's China, 
in order to survive, both countries have had to revive at least a form of capitalism uh, rather than the kind of socialism for the rich that the Federal Reserve seems to be peddling. So in the second half of today's show, I will ask Keith to explain all that. Uh, and just to, uh, certainly uh, one of the ways that we want to try to protect ourselves from the incoming uh, destruction that seems to be heading our way is that we want to own gold, that's for sure, and Keith will talk to us about the programs that he has with his company uh, that can help you actually earn a reasonable rate of interest in a safe in a safe manner with his company. Uh, but certainly investing in companies that discover major gold deposits is another way that you can preserve wealth. And again, as I mentioned, Chris Taylor will be with me uh, in just a few moments after our first commercial break. Certainly that company's Dixie Project in the Red Lake District of Ontario is one of the most exciting gold discoveries that I have been following in all these, uh, well, it's actually now, I'm come to think of it, about 38 years that I've been writing my newsletter. So we'll be talking to Chris right after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Greg, and it's a good time, actually. It's a good time, and, you know, we're not having you on every week, every other week, and uh, it, because you sort of felt that, you know, it gets a little stale. It's the same thing every week, but it's not. Um, of course, but now every other week, and this week you have a couple of markets that you're really watching closely uh, that you think are probably going to be important with respect to gold's next move. Uh, talk to us about what markets those are and why you think they're so important, and where are they now in terms of the major turning points for those markets? Well, the, the two are the two quietest markets for the last year and a half. In other words, where their price range was measured in single-digit percentages, in narrow single-digit percentages. That would be the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which hit its low in 2016 and then since has gone to sleep, and the dollar index. Now, while everybody touts emotionally the firm dollar, if you actually look at it and go back to August of last year, which was the end of a rally for the dollar, uh, ninety-seven. Well, that's what we're trading now. Okay, yeah. we've been higher. We've been up in the uh, low ninety-nines and been down in the ninety-sixes. But it's extremely narrow range for a major asset like that. Same is true with the euro. The inverse of it. Um, then the Bloomberg's been extremely narrow. So those are the markets that nobody's paying a lot of attention to because they're they're not deemed to be a factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when foreign investors come over and buy U.S. stocks or any other assets in the U.S., of course, they're effectively have to buy them in dollars, so they're, they have a dollar exposure right. to their portfolio. And uh, that has not been disturbing to them. So as the S&P goes up, uh, the dollar's hanging in there, so there's, that's not a factor in their sense of their safety. Now, the dollar, I think, is about to become a factor in the sense of their safety. It's dropped early this quarter from the 99s down into under 97. Right now it's back above 97. But it's below certain key levels that we defined early in the quarter. If you close the month, any month this quarter or the end of the quarter, December, below a certain number, as far as we're concerned, the downside is beginning again. Uh, And those numbers will actually adjust upward once we get into January. Mm -hmm. So if you don't break them, the close of this month, and you're below them right now, Mm -hmm. uh, you'll likely break them next month. So mm-hmm. we think those triggers are going to be pulled and the dollar is going to wake up to the downside and make a lot of noise and become mm-hmm. a factor. Uh, inverse of that, almost exactly inverse to that, if you overlay their quarterly momentum charts, is the Bloomberg Commodity Index, mm-hmm. which for the last year and a half has been confined below its three-quarter average, mostly. Uh, never closed a month above it. Well, we're above it now. 
Mm-hmm. And we only have, you know, what, a handful or so trading days left in the year. So it looks like it wants to have an upside breakout. And this is not narrow. It's not just as oil's up. Copper's also up sharply. Grains are moving up. Soft commodities, sugar, cocoa, moving upward. Gold's already moved up. We know that it moved up $400 in a year. Uh, Silver's moved up nicely. And they're sitting there waiting, we think, the leadership markets, gold and silver, for wind at their back. Mm -hmm. They did not need any wind at their back over the last year, from August 2018 to August of this year. They did it on their own. There was no commodity yeah. price inflation, et cetera. But we think they're now going to get that wind at the back. They're going to get headline stories about commodity price booming and uh, the dollar breaking down. So suddenly there'll be new factors that the public can sort of appreciate mm-hmm. and likely move more money into the gold market. So mm-hmm. we think this is very much a replay of the stagflation era of the latter half of the 1970s when wow. we had 6% to 9% unemployment oscillated back and forth. The world economy basically was flatlined. And uh, we came out of recession in 74, 75, but you really never recovered. And yet uh, markets like copper uh, tripled in price. Gold went from, you know, uh, a low in 2000, uh, let's see, in 1976, at just above 100, to went to 850, mm-hmm. so et cetera, et cetera. And it was across right. the board in commodities. So we think that's about what's going to happen in terms of, asset class shift. One from a fundamental point of view of why things happen. But I couldn't help but notice an article I just read this last week that 90% of the treasury, new treasury borrowings since September have been financed by the Fed. In other words, printing press money. And the central banks around the world are talking about how they want to generate more inflation. So they seem to be telling us that come hell or high water, they're going to make sure prices rise commodity mm-hmm. prices i mean equity markets have risen all you know like mad so i guess you're really yeah, on the on the equities you're not so you, you think they're very vulnerable at this stage I right think the equities are first off they're a dog uh, even taking the s&p which is the strongest broad index in the developed markets if you objectively don't listen to the news that says oh we're up 25 percent this year of course you are because you had a collapse last year you came from the lows, okay? If you go back to 2019, uh, uh, to the high of 2018 in January, so almost two years ago, we were 2,800 plus, okay? Now, we're at 3,100. Well, there's an angle across the highs from 2000, early 2018, September 2018, and the highs we made earlier this year that we've gotten above that angle a little bit. It's what I call uh-huh. a blow-off. But that angle rises at 3% annual rate. Uh-huh. So since, uh, ni- uh, since 2018, we've risen at a 3% annual rate on the S&P if you look across the highs. So it's not a booming market. It's a, a stagnant, slightly rising market, which is evidence of distribution. In other words, mm-hmm. somebody decided a couple years ago that the risk-reward ratio of owning stocks was not that good, and mm-hmm. they began to divest from the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often this occurs. It happened in 1929, happened in 87, where you had a premature top mm-hmm. and then a burst at the end that took out the distribution zone, and people thought, oh, a whole new leg is starting. Yeah. I think that's where we are now. Now, at mm-hmm. the same time, what have commodities done? They've not gone down. Mm-hmm. They ceased going down in 2016. In fact, they're well off those lows. Admittedly, it's sideways, but it's somewhat reflective of the sideways gradual rise in stocks. You've had a non-event sideways in the commodities. We think that's evidence on both sides 
of accumulators in commodities and distributors in stocks. Mm-hmm. And we think this well, is a snapping, snapping point for both. Right. Well, it's a key time. No, it, it would really seem that that's the case. And uh, very, very bullish for, I would think, for gold ultimately. But uh, what will really surprise people is if we start getting some inflation in the form of commodity prices, I think, is no one's really expecting that, as you say. Nobody's We're expecting, expecting those the first leg to be something on the order of 30%. Rapidly, within wow. a couple quarters, and, if and we you, trigger our numbers, which we're slightly above right now, so uh, right. that that yeah. will be a shock effect. Well, this is the value of Michael's uh, Michael's work. I might just tell my my listeners is that he sends out these missives throughout the week or whenever they are important to let people know when key areas are being violated or being uh, taken out, uh, and that's very important. And Michael, I understand that you have a special report coming out today on copper, which you're turning very bullish on, right? Oh, yes. Uh, copper is fully participating. It's beating its chest. And uh, they like to attribute it. Wall Street Journal said the other day it was because of the economy is getting better, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and I yeah. take the opposite of yeah. that. I think this is yeah. the late 70s. Uh, it's, uh, unfortunately. It's Federal unfortunately. Reserve at work. <laughs> All right. Well, it's uh, okay. Well, it is what it is. And we have to protect ourselves as best we can. It's OliverMSA.com. OliverMSA.com. Go there, folks. Sign up for Michael's letter. Uh, if you're an investor of any size, you won't be sorry that you did. Thank you, Michael, for being with us, and uh, we'll you, uh, look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks in a new year, no doubt. All right. All right, folks. Well, that's, we do have to go to break now. Um, we're going to be back with Chris Taylor. His uh, stock is on fire. I see it's up another 5% or so today on some really good news that was put out yesterday. So we'll be right back right after the break with Chris Taylor. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5-kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really excited to have with me once again Chris Taylor. I'm excited because Chris is heading up one of the most exciting exploration stories that I've covered in my 38 years of writing my newsletter. Great Bear Resources is just really doing extremely well, uh, and so we're really glad to have Chris with us. Thanks for joining me again, Chris. Very nice to speak with you again, Jay. It's really good to have you here. I should tell our listeners that I, I saw your stock was up almost a, a little more than 5% a few minutes ago anyway when we, before we came. Um, 46.3 million shares, I believe, is the number. Fully diluted, 53.8 million. You have nearly $31 million around that in the till. Uh, stock selling well north of $6 in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of uh, close to $300 million in U.S. money. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the press release, the, the news that you just put out uh, yesterday on Monday uh, along the LP fault, which is uh, where most of your efforts are these days at, on your Dixie project. Can you talk about the press release this past Monday, maybe talk about the, uh, the results and, and what that means for that, that part of your exploration uh, program? Sure. Thanks, Jay. Uh, effectively, uh, the Dixie Project, which is 100% owned by Great Bear, uh, it, it hosts one of the biggest gold discoveries in Canada uh, for many years. Uh, that's the view that's emerging uh, as we begin to drill more holes and we collect more data and the company continues to grow and the share price has been appreciating. The, the, the reason for that is because it looks like this LP fault zone that we're drilling off is one of the biggest ones in uh, recent memory. And it puts it in side-by-side uh, -side comparison to there are other big deposits like this in Canada, and Canada is one of the leading gold producers in the world. Uh, but when you look at it, the big deposits and the companies that own them are much larger uh, than Great Bear. The guys that have comparable uh, gold endowment and con uh, comparable sort of zones to what we're looking at along LP. So that's really the driving reason for the success. And the numbers that we put out yesterday were reinforcing this because given the scale, this four-kilometer uh, so far extent that we've drilled along a big 18-kilometer-long target, uh, and it's hard to kind of get your head around that just for the, yeah. the raw scale, but every drill hole along the first four kilometers that we've drilled has gold in it. And there haven't been any holes um, that we've aimed at that fault that have, um, you know, that have hit the fault that haven't had gold. They've all been mineralized. So that's really exceptional because it has this continuity and this, this sort of sense of scale. And the numbers that we put out yesterday, uh, just to give you an idea for some of the highlight intercepts, uh, we had 48.67 grams over 8.7 meters. So I guess in imperial terms, that's about an ounce and a half gold over, or what would that work into? More than 20 feet. Right, right, so, and that's mm -hmm. shallow, shallow mineralization compared to most of our peers. So these are uh, they're really exceptional numbers, and we keep generating very good gold values as we go kilometer after kilometer after kilometer along this big LP fault structure. You just uh, recently announced also uh, adding some 110,000 meters uh, to your current drill program. That is pushing it up to 200,000 meters. I guess we'll take you through two, uh, 2020. Uh, could you tell our listeners what the objectives of, of that very aggressive drill program is now? Well, you know, given the scale of the system that we're working on, uh, and given that uh, portions of the system uh, where we don't have load access, uh, although most of the project, it's, it's located, the project's located right beside a paved highway. So mm -hmm. nowhere are you about, uh, nowhere are you more than a mile or two miles away from a paved highway and a power line and all that. So this is very easy to access. It's not up in the mountains. It's 
not up in the Arctic. It's just in Ontario, um, and it's uh, easy to access. But um, given the scale of the size of the system that we're drilling, we needed to really make that drilling go more aggressively because portions of the project don't have uh, logging road access. And that means that we have to drill them in the winter. So we are increasing the number of drill rigs and increasing the meters that we're drilling so that what we're aiming to deliver to the market uh, in 2020 is a very good idea how big a portion of that uh, system is, the mineralized system. I think this sort of four-kilometer type area that we've been working on so far would be a really good uh, part of the project to, say, do initial resource definition on and then continue the expansion work concurrently testing all these other targets that we have and testing uh, the remaining uh, portions of the LP fault out to as much as we can get. We think we'll probably drill off about 12 kilometers of it uh, during 2020. Wow. So in the meantime, I guess if you can do some infill drilling and start to get a, a, a resource calculation within that four-kilometer area, the market can kind of start to see what you, what you might have there. And then if you continue to step out successfully, uh, then you can extrapolate potentially something much bigger even. Uh, I guess that's the intent, right? Correct. I mean, right now, before we do resource definition, all we can point to is projects that are similar and have sort of similar size. And one that we've pointed to many times based on the style of gold mineralization is the Hemlo deposit in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, that produced over 23 million ounces of gold along about three kilometers of strike length, but similar disseminated high-grade gold to what we're seeing right now. Uh, but again, that's a 23 million uh, ounce deposit, but over less of an area than what we've currently got. The other one that we point to frequently is the Malarctic deposit, which is the biggest gold mine in Canada, I guess the open pit there, uh, is about uh, three and a half kilometers long, and it's got about a 12 million ounce. So it's quite a large uh, bulk tonnage producer. So these are the sort of systems that are similar uh, to what we've got here, um, you know, in terms of the physical footprint at the Dixie property. And by doing fill-in drilling along a portion of that 18 kilometers, we'd be able to really show the market that minimally we have this X amount of gold. The thing is that because our target is so big, um, at 18, at 18 kilometers length, there are no zones. There are no contiguous gold zones known in Canada that are contiguous over an 18 kilometer length. So I don't yet know how big ours is going to be, but it's already butting heads with the biggest uh, kind of deposits that we know about in the country. But what we need to do is the filling drilling to show exactly how many ounces and what grade and these other characteristics. So, but we know so far with the information that we have, that it does look like um, a very significant discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, uh, your initial, your stock initially took off when you made these high-grade discoveries at the Hinge and the Dixie Limb Zone, some of those more traditional Red Lake mineralization types. Uh, and then I think some, some investors are a little disappointed because you went over to the LP Zone and the the numbers weren't always nearly as uh, ne- nearly as as sensational, perhaps. Although you have had, as you just pointed out, some fingers of really high grade gold as well. But maybe explain to our listeners why the LP is so much more important that you focus most of your efforts there rather than the, the spectacular high traditional type of mineralization, high grade mineralization at Red Lake. Well, the typical zones in Red Lake, they, as they tend to be high grade and very narrow. 
Um, on average, you're mining something that's a meter or two meters wide, sometimes three meters wide. So it'd be about the, the width of your typical dining room table or something like that. And mm-hmm. the grades will be really good. You know, they'll be um, six grams to, say, 20 grams maybe on average over those kind of widths. So this is very much like what we're looking at with our original Dixie Lim and Hinge Discoveries, high-grade gold and veins. But there is no individual zone in Red Lake that's more than a couple hundred meters long. Sometimes they're vertically extensive. Uh, you mm-hmm. get lenses that are hundreds of meters, but they're not very big zones individually. So in mm-hmm. a normal mine, you'd have maybe 10 zones of, say, 100,000 ounces each or 200,000 ounces each. So you'd be a million to a couple million ounces that you would mine out in these narrow sort of lenses. And that's very much like what we have at the Dixie Linden Hinge, so conventional high-grade uh, underground Red Lake mining. But the LP fault, um, the scale of it is staggeringly different. So you end up with very high-grade gold, like some of these numbers that we've put out. Uh, we've put out initially you know, a couple meters of uh, just about 200 grams per ton gold. You have many intervals that are 17, 18 meters of 10 to 12 grams per ton gold. So that's a third of an ounce to close to half an ounce. Um, so uh, wider intervals of very high-grade gold mineralization, but the continuity is what really makes it exceptional because we're seeing, I was talking with our vice president of exploration last night over dinner while we were uh, discussing some results, and some of the zones that we're looking at have continuity apparently in the drilling that we've done so far on the drill fences. We see this, what we interpret so far as the same zones over nearly 400, 500 meters continuously. Wow. So wow. these are larger and wider and higher grade than what you would typically see in Red Lake. And that means mm-hmm. when we drill the LP fault, we're getting more, uh, effectively more gold mineralization per drill hole than you would on a normal Red Lake target. Not just a bit more, a lot more. So it's been uh, very exciting for us because that's extremely unusual. So to get that kind of big scale continuity of high grade mineralization and then these broad envelopes, sometimes we've seen up to 120 meters of over a gram per ton gold going right to surface. Those are the sort of broad, lower-grade envelopes around the high-grade that uh, the big companies in the world are looking for because these make uh, surface-accessible bulk tonnage mining, which are really profit drivers for those corporations. So that's why we've been so interesting to so many people, even at this very early stage. Yeah, it's early stage, but uh, and you've done a remarkable job of, of being able to raise money efficiently, not you know with minimal dilution, which leads me to my uh, another question. You want to, I, I mean, as a shareholder, I'm hoping that this is what you have in mind to be able to uh, to to define the limits of this massive this mammoth deposit. It looks like, um, and uh, to define the limits of it without giving the store away. That is, you've been able to raise money. I think you have something like thirty-one million dollars thereabouts in the in the till right now. I guess that will take you through twenty twenty, will it? Yeah, all the way through twenty twenty and into twenty twenty one. We have, in addition to that, there is um, uh, some warrants that are owned by largely management and one of our one of our significant shareholders which would bring in about another $10 million. So in the till right now, we have the equivalent of about $40 million. So we'll probably finish. The current drill program is budgeted at about $20 million. That'll be wrapped up by the end of 2020. But we'll still have roughly, even with the the burn rates, all the administration fees and marketing and all that, probably somewhere on the neighborhood of about $15 million left in the bank account at the end of 2020, which lets us Mm -hmm. either do way more drilling inside of 2020 or just continue drilling through 2021. So we're in a very good financial position. Yeah, well, I'm really hopeful that uh, you can hang on 
uh, from any would-be predators for as long as possible and, and keep stepping out and keep hitting. Of course, at some point in time, we know um, you're likely not to keep hitting. I mean, one of the most uh, impressive things about your story and why I got in really early was because you were hitting consistently, and that was back there in the initial discovery with the hinge and the Dixie limb, and now LP zone seems to be the same story. So one more question before I let you go, Chris. Having to do with your announcement, oh, maybe several weeks ago, about a royalty spin-out, a 2% royalty spin-out you're talking about. And in your most recent press release, you talked about uh, that you would be providing more uh, more detail on that, but apparently that is something your your board is planning to move forward with. Uh, is that uh, could you talk to us a little bit about the philosophy behind forming a uh, a royalty spin out for existing shareholders? Yeah, Jay, uh, like one of our, our primary concerns as management in Great Bear, just based on the strength and the size of what we've got, is that we think what we're drilling off is really a world class asset, so a tier one asset from a big company point of view. And there are no Tier 1 assets that aren't owned by big companies. It's all owned and operated by a handful of the biggest companies, all the assets that fit these criteria. So if we have one of those, we're going to be uh, a target of consumption uh, from one of them because they're looking for safe jurisdiction, North American access, big-scale, profitable projects. And if we continue to deliver like we have been, I think this is what we're very likely looking at. So that means that as management, you look at it and you're like, how do we benefit our shareholders as much as possible? And one of the ways to do that is to take a royalty, put it on the project that goes then directly out to be owned by our shareholders. Because out of all these big deposits in the world that sort of fit these kind of criteria like we're thinking... All of them have royalties on them, but we were really smart when we got involved in Dixie and we bought out the royalties very early on before anybody Ah. knew, and we didn't even know how big the project was. So it took a royalty, brought it all the way down to zero, and by adding a 2% royalty, we're just kind of bringing it up from the basement back to ground level. But that benefit on that, the cash flow that could be generated, if it's as big as what we think it is, we think that royalty is going to be worth potentially as much as the entire company is right now to our shareholders again as a spin-out. And we'll announce details about that in January, but the potential cash value of a royalty, if the system is as big as what we think, is probably very similar to, or potentially very similar to what the market capitalization of Great Bear is at the moment. So that's something we wanted our shareholders to benefit from, and it would make it completely in line with some of the biggest deposits in the world in terms of the royalty burdens that they have. Some of them have 5 or 7% royalties on them, and they're still highly profitable because of the size and scale. So we think that this is not an economic impediment to the project, but it's certainly an economic economic opportunity for Great Bear shareholders. Well, that's very exciting, and I must say, personally for me, it's one of the reasons I vowed not to sell any shares from this point forward because I want to hang on to that longer-term promise because I, too, believe, based on what I've been uh, following your story, that that uh, you have a monster on your hands. You're growing a very large deposit, and uh, and the economics, whilst there's still a lot of work to be done, look very very positive uh, for at this early stage. Anyway, Chris, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, well, I guess there'll be constant news flow then. I guess into the new year, right? Oh, yeah, it's even going to be a very busy January, so uh, I would anticipate. So, th- thanks for speaking with me again, Jay. It's All always right. a great thank- pleasure. So. Thank you very much, Chris, for being with us. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Keith Wiener will be with me. He's the founder of Monetary Metals, and he has some very interesting ideas about how you can actually earn interest on your gold. 
Yeah, that was always the reason you weren't supposed to own gold is you can't earn any interest on it. Well, I got news for you. You can earn more now in a safe way with monetary metals than you can by putting your money in the bank. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Keith Wiener. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie Project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete their very active 90,000-meter drill program through next year. Considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years, GBR aims to release a maiden resource in early 2020. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Keith Wiener with me once again. Keith's been on the show a couple of times in the past. Uh, Keith uh, is the uh, founder of Monetary Metals. He is a leading authority in the areas of gold, money, and credit, and has made important contributions to the development of trading techniques and uh, founded upon the analysis of bid-ask spreads. He is the founder of Diamondware. It's a software company sold in Ortel. 2008, and he currently serves as president of the Gold Standard Institute USA. Um, he earned his PhD from the New Austrian School of Economics. Welcome, Keith, and uh, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. You know, I would like to tell our listeners before we get started here that uh, they can go to the Monetary Metals website. They could easily do that by going to J. Taylor Media, clicking on the banner. There's a couple of banners there at J. Taylor Media, also at miningstocks.com, and I believe there's one also at the Voice America Business Channel. Click there, and it will take you right through to some articles that Keith writes and all the things that, that goes on there at Monetary Metals. And Keith writes uh, frequently writes very insightful articles, and it's one of those articles that we want to talk to him about today. Um, so, Keith, I picked up on your uh, on a recent article that you wrote on December 8th titled The End of an Epoch. Um, what epoch are you talking about? I guess, uh, in a way, you can call it the modern monetary system, um, which people are now starting to call late-stage capitalism. 
But of course, there's nothing to do with capitalism. It's not capitalism. Yeah. But the way in which we finance things, the way in which we live on credit, borrowing to spend, and calling that you know an increase in GDP, yeah, um, is not sustainable. And um, it's kind of funny in the world that, in a way, the left makes an observation that things aren't good, and you know, kind of getting worse for an awful lot of people. But, and and that, the observation is correct. Of course, their diagnosis is that it's capitalism, and their prescription is, well, we need a wealth tax, which is just evil. The right is trying to head the left off the path, so the, the right denies the observation and says, everything's great. Economy's never been better. Look at how low unemployment is, and they point to other either concurrent indicators or even trailing indicators to prove their point, cherry-pick some data, and say everything's wonderful. But I think... You know, millions and millions and millions of people sense there's something wrong. There's mm-hmm. something wrong in the world right now. And um, I see a big part of my work as trying to put my finger on precisely what it is that's wrong. And that's what I meant by the end of an epoch. Right. Well, uh, I've titled today's show after reading your article, Youth in, Asian, Youth in Asia of Capitalism by the Federal Reserve Bank. I think that's uh, sort of the bottom line of what of what your article concludes. But then... What we want to get to is, you know, what, how can we fix things? How can we make things better if, if not for the world, at least for ourselves? And we want to get to that. But I want to start out here by just reading Keynes' a very, a very famous quote from Keynes that you started your article out with. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction. And it does it in a manner which not one in a million is able to diagnose, end of quotes. So, as you pointed out in your article, most people believe that what Keynes was talking about there was inflation, that inflation was the destroyer of the economy. And we certainly have seen, uh, you know, you certainly could be cases where inflation, I mean, even in the late 1970s, Michael Oliver, who was on with us in the first segment, thinks we're heading back to something like the 19, late 1970s with a uh, more of an inflationary situation but but I mean that certainly was very destructive and hyperinflationary Germany and a number of other places certainly uh, inflation is destructive but but I guess maybe what you're saying is that's the key to it is the debauching of currency which is more to do with interest rates as as I understand uh, could you explain maybe why why do you believe that Keynes had that in mind rather than inflation and to what extent do you believe that that he was right about that yeah, so um, obviously people hear the word debauch the currency. They think the value of the currency is, you know, one over the price level, so therefore it had to be inflation. But I think that 999,999 out of a million could recognize inflation. I mean, everybody talks about it even today, and I'm just old enough to remember the late 1970s. And believe me, everybody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. I can distinctly recall every week you'd go to the grocery store and every item had a higher price. Yeah, And what the grocery stores used to do back then, you know, of course, there wasn't barcodes and scanners. They had to put a sticker on each item. Mm-hmm. And what they used to do when they wanted to have a midweek price raise is they would put a new sticker over the old one. Mm-hmm. So people used to play games where, you know, if it wasn't too well aligned, you could peel off. So the stickers were designed. They couldn't be peeled off. They would tear. And then I remember in my local town in New York, some idiots were lobbying for law to make it illegal for grocery stores to re-sticker a price once it had already been marked. Oh. That was the 1970s. We are not in that environment today. That was an environment where they had 
very strong pricing power and there's nothing as a consumer you could do about it. Mm-hmm. And so people used to hoard, my parents hoarded cans of tuna fish because you'd rather have a balance of tuna fish in the pantry bank than a balance of dollars in the bank bank. That is not our environment today. Um, what is what is it that one in a million people can't recognize? Well, he said in another quote, he calls the uh, rentier, which is basically the saver, the investor, a functionless parasite, in Keynes' opinion. And um, he calls for euthanasia, killing this functional, functionless parasite by driving the interest rates to zero. And, of course, that's our world today. They're driving interest rates to zero. And in Europe, Switzerland, Japan, Scandinavia, it's beyond zero. It's actually negative. And um, I think when he, he, I think he's actually smirking. Mm-hmm. He's very smug and sort of chuckling into himself at how terribly clever he was to say, <laughs> here's we're going to do this, and nobody's going to get it. Why is nobody going to get it? Because the price of the bond, and because of arbitrage and modern markets, all other assets, the price of the asset is the inverse of the interest rate. You drive mm-hmm. the interest rate down, you drive asset prices up. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? If people aren't thinking about the euthanasia of the rentier, they're thinking bull market. Mm-hmm. Who can possibly dislike a bull market? Mm-hmm. When people tout how strong the economy is, under this president, it's the conservatives touting it. Under Obama, it was the liberals touting it, but it's the same mm-hmm. touting. The mm-hmm. first thing they want to point to is the stock market's going up, and that's proof the economy is good. And I'm looking at this saying, that's proof that the driving the interest rate to zero is working, because that drives the asset prices to infinity. Everybody loves a bull market. But Keynes was right. If you drive it to zero, then you destroy not just the value. It's not, it's not a... Um, like a neutron bomb that destroys the currency and everything else and all the people survive. You, you sort of just you tear at the fabric of society itself because now the savers can't save. You know, there are very few people asking the question, what is somebody who's working for wages today supposed to do about saving for retirement? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's two basic answers to that. One is they throw their arms up and say, well, the government's going to pay me whatever, Social Security. Good luck with that one. And then the other one is, I've seen this in a few surveys, where people think that they're going to sue a doctor and get rich or sue yeah. somebody. And of course, neither of those are really going to work for whole generations of people who need to retire. And so I think Keynes was right. There's something very evil and very destructive about this. And we're still at the point where not one in a million can diagnose it. Yeah. One in a million thinks as long as the stock market's going up, everything is cool. Everything is, I mean, everybody thinks that, basically. The one in a million. I mean, we have David Stockman on this show who sees it differently. A, a lot of our, several of our guests do. But for the most part, I think you're right. And as long as, uh, as long as the Dow makes it up uh, every day, uh, they're, they're just fine with the way things are. Uh, do you, but, but we certainly do have a level of consumer inflation now though too don't we i mean we certainly it's i wouldn't i would maintain that inflation is much higher than what the government pretends it is inflation as defi- defined by the cpi they certainly are are not seeing the inflation that's gone into the asset prices into the uh, into the financial assets anyway uh, but but healthcare education those kind of things are are certainly you would agree that they're uh, rising prices and a declining purchasing power of the american consumer would you not so I, I make a distinction between monetary causes for rising prices versus non-monetary causes. Uh-huh. I've written a whole bunch of articles about this. And I, I define the concept that I call useless ingredients. And so this is what regulators 
and, and taxing authorities for that matter too. So just look at gasoline in the state of California. Um, so first of all, when people say the purchasing power of the dollar is going down, I was, you know, do you mean the purchasing power of the Los Angeles dollar or the purchasing power of the Hume, Arizona dollar, you know, 250 miles uh, east of there? Because mm-hmm. of course the price of gas would be at least a dollar different. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, California, they do two things to gasoline. They mandate expensive additives. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have this MTBE and they have ethanol and they have all these other things. Um, and then they also add taxes. So was it a year ago now, they added another 25 cents per gallon gas tax. So at the time that they enact this, everybody is quite aware that the regulators or the taxinators, as I call them, um, have increased the, you know, the price of gasoline. But a year later, that's forgotten, and then people talk about inflation as a general amorphous term. I say, look, you really got to look at useless ingredients that are forced to be added by you know government versus monetary forces. So if you look at raw commodities, um, the picture you see, some raw commodities are at or near multi-year, even multi-decade lows, um, and other raw commodities, you know, may not be quite at their low, but I mean, the price of crude oil is nowhere near its high, for example. Um, I wrote an article, I think it was a couple of years ago, saying I had bought a pair of Levi's jeans in 1983, Levi's 501 jeans, in 1983 for $50. I distinctly recall that, because mm-hmm. at that time, for me, $50 was like a lot, saving of up a lot of my a lot of my allowance. I was in high school at the time. Mm-hmm. And um a couple of years ago, when I bought a pair of Levi's 501 jeans, they were $45. And so I just kind of had to look at this and say, you know, if we really had the rampant inflation that everybody's talking about, I mean, you can quibble and say they're made in China. Maybe they, Levi's cheapened it. Well, I couldn't really see how they cheapened it. To me, it felt like the same product. But you can quibble this and that and the other thing. But, you know, 30-some-odd years of relentless skyrocketing inflation, if that really was the case... You know, there's no way that it would be forty. It would be five dollars cheaper than it had been all those years earlier. You know, it would be it would be five hundred dollars and not you know forty five dollars. And so I think, um, and of course, you know, use the example of healthcare. The other one being higher education, the cost of a university degree, and those are the areas in which the government has interfered and distorted the worst. Um, so if you take a look, you can compare healthcare for necessary. Uh, you know, um, you know, correcting disease type healthcare versus elective things like LASIK eye surgery, mm-hmm. or for that matter, uh, veterinary care for your pet. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a huge contrast. You know, the, the cost of LASIK has been coming down to up, and the cost of veterinary care is you know suffering the same problem that every other industry has, which is they have no pricing power. Volumes are falling, and the only way to get you know more volume is to either cut your price or offer 0% financing. And so I, I think those are non-monetary forces that are driving up, certainly education and healthcare, but in general, when prices are, are rising, that's what it is. Why so do you think they, that, well, Keith, why do you think we've lost a pricing power now as opposed to the 70s? Why, why is that? So in a rising interest rate environment, you know, whoever has got a factory that manufactures, whether it's you know, pencils or cars or clothing or whatever, you know, they've got their factory finance at a certain interest rate, then the interest rate goes up. And so nobody has any incentive to get into that business. The cost of capital is higher. The only incentive to get into that business is if the profit margins widen. And so in a rising interest rate, rising price environment, you know, prices go up sufficiently and then maybe somebody 
dips their toes in the water. But in a falling interest rate environment, which is what we've had since 1981, um, in a falling interest rate environment, every you know manufacturer is, is thinking, you know, who's, who's considering, should I borrow money and open up, whether it's a hamburger stand or whether it's a factory that manufactures you know widgets, you know, they look at it and say, okay, do I want to borrow at 6%? Maybe not. Then the market comes back and says, how about five? How about four? How about three? And they keep making capital cheaper and cheaper and cheaper until they lure the next guy in, the next marginal um, producer is lured in. And so not only, he's lured in only because the cost of capital went down. And now he is able to either have a lower payment financing the same factory as his competitor does, or he can build something bigger that has higher capacity and spend more capital cost on it, but then his monthly payment is the same. And so the net result is he's putting the squeeze on the margins of his competitors. Then they lower the interest rate again. His old competitor is now out. New competitor puts the squeeze on him. And then they lower the interest rate again. And that's our that's our world. So nobody, you know, just as soon as you think you can make a little bit of margin, they lower the interest rate and you have a new competitor. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a very destructive environment, but it's doing it. It's doing it, it's doing it in a way that not one in a million can diagnose it. Because, of course, not only are the investors happy that their assets are skyrocketing, the consumers are happy that prices are soft or, or even falling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go to a shopping mall right now. It's not unusual to see huge sales. This is before Christmas. I mean, it used to be in the, you know, when the world was quote-unquote normal that you, know, you didn't see sales until... Uh, you know, the stores reopened after Christmas. Mm-hmm. But, but Keith, we're on this uh, sort of this massive spiraling down of, of interest rates, uh, negative in a good part of the world. It would seem as though they're headed to the United States as well. And um, Alistair McLeod, who's a, a guest on this show sometimes, was making the, the point that if the dollar is the world's reserve currency goes negative, it's different than if the euro or the yen or the others go negative because... Everything is denominated in dollars, and so everything mm-hmm. has a time preference, which I'm sure as an Austrian economist you, you probably agree with. Yes, absolutely. And, that, and that, so that his, his point is that if the dollar goes negative, and he says that gold, for example, has a time preference of maybe 2% or one5 2.5%, somewhere in that range, and that doesn't change. So you, I mean, in part, what you're doing now, your your program is allowing people to lease gold. I just participated in a very small way in a deal that you put together, and I think we're getting two and a quarter percent. You can't, and and we'll get paid back in gold. And it's we're not lending gold; it's a lease, so we're not taking the same risk as if we put our money in the bank, because there we're we're not the owners of that money anymore. We're a lender to that to the bank, an unsecured lender at that. Um, but do you see – Alistair's point is that he believes that the dollar could be in some real trouble if we continue to go negative because uh, people won't have any option but to get – you know, trade the dollars for stuff. And if the dollars go down dramatically, won't that – in terms of uh, if prices are measured in dollars, if the dollar loses its – if confidence is lost in the dollar, won't that mean that prices will go up as denominated in the dollar? So, so first, I wanted to say um, it's it's very interesting his point about time preference and in gold you can't manipulate the interest rate. You know, in a certain sense, monetary metals is conducting um, an experiment um, in the market about such things. And um, you know, we've done a variety of deals that have ranged. This is um, net to the investor, 
uh, ranged on the low end from 2%, so there's Alistair's number, up to 4.5% on the high end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we'll continue to run the experiment, see where it is. You know, I don't want to bias it by opining on that. But there definitely is a time preference, and, and if the interest rate goes below that, in gold, people will just simply pull their gold coin out of the market and say, well, you mm-hmm. can't have it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only comes in for interest. Um, but yeah, I also agree that if, if the interest rate in the dollar goes negative, that is extremely dangerous. Um, I, I do think, In fact, I think it's inevitable that it will go negative, but it will come to the dollar last. That is, after uh-huh. all the other currencies have failed, mm-hmm. the dollar is the last one to fail. Because it's the reserve. And what reserve means is all the other currencies are dollar derivatives. Right, there is no right. way for any other currency to survive the destruction of the dollar. If any had survived that long, which I don't think is likely anyway, then it would be wiped out. You know, it would be like being a little life raft bolted to the side of an aircraft carrier. When the carrier sinks, that life raft isn't going to survive. Um, so um, that is extremely dangerous because when the interest rate is manipulated negative, it's essentially forcing, it's like a central planner forcing a wrong price. So we all know what happens if, you know, in Venezuela, they say the price of gasoline is 20 cents a gallon. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get overconsumption of gasoline and then eventually, you know, the state, um, you know, gas industry fails because they can't, you know, losing money at that price. Well, if you, if you misprice credit, then what happens is, um, it, it's as if you're saying to people that your time preference is going to be negative, but um, that's like King Canute ordering the tide back. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. The legislator, the government, can never change natural law, mm-hmm. and so what you get is some very perverse behaviors. There will be a loss of confidence in the dollar at the end, which is certainly not occurring right now at the moment. I really want to emphasize that. And when it occurs at the end, yeah, people are going to buy things, and of course, the best thing to buy in that environment is gold. I mean, nobody really wants, you know, Mises talks about lady shoes and frying pans and stuff. That's what you're going to buy if you can't buy gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's a rush for gold because that's the best thing to own, you know, in that environment. And that's that's going to be an enormously destructive, cataclysmic event. Um, I think it's going to be like 476 AD. This is not 1979. It's not 1929. It's, you know, it's the end. And, what was that um, date? What, what was that date again? 476 AD is when uh, Rome collapsed. Yeah. So um, the population of Rome in the city was over a million people before that, and afterwards it was six or eight thousand. So you know, I assume that a few refugees escaped to a farm somewhere remotely, but most of those people probably died. Well, Keith, uh, we um, I don't know that we uh, that, that we like to hear that sort of thing, and I'm not sure um, what you can tell us to cheer us up after that. I might have some people that. Uh, throw in the towel and jump off the bridge. We don't want that. Uh, you know, I, you know, my point of this is, um, and I, I personally made a decision not to try to prep for that eventuality, but to try to oppose it. Mm-hmm. And the way out of this, there is no way out as long as we cling to the irredeemable dollar. The way out of this is to return to a gold standard. And um, that's the whole point of what of what I'm doing ultimately. Sure. Right. I am doing it. If, if this was a normal world, I wouldn't be in the gold business. I was a software guy. Uh, I, would, no. I sold exactly. my software company. No software company. Yeah, a lot so of there, other things. There, you is, hope, do there is hope. Yeah, there is hope, of, and, and I'm pursuing that hope right now. Okay, a lot of other things you could be doing. So at least for the individual, for those of us individuals, 
we should start thinking in that way. And then maybe collectively things will get better. We can hope and pray for that. But Keith, I want to thank you very much. We're out of time. I guess uh, the best thing to tell people to keep up with your writing, you write at least once a week, don't you? If you, you go to monetarymetals.com, right? Monetary. Monetary-Mentals.com, yes, I write at least once a week. Excellent. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Keith, and uh, we'll look to have you back again sometime in the not-too-distant future. All right, folks, well, we do have to go now. That is it for this week. Uh, Next week, I'll be speaking with Bob Moriarty, and then I'll have uh, a few of my Metal Investor Forum newsletter writing colleagues with me to talk about their top picks as we go into 2020. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. 